again and happy dad's day to all you dads and thank you all you moms for making us dads you uh, have done the hard work well, i'm glad to see you all here it's uh, good to fellowship and good to worship together especially today you know we call it a a fun day and, and i hope it is but it's also such a special occasion to be able to uh, do some baptisms and to share a meal together um, to just uh, just to grow as brothers and sisters in Christ, and um, as you notice, we put the baptismal right out next to all those vegetables. So maybe we can get a good stew going after we get them out. I told Terry to start heating it up now, but he thought it might be dangerous. Whatever. Yeah. Anyway, let me pray. We'll get started. Our heavenly Father. We thank you for the relationship that we're allowed to have with you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray as a church, Lord, that we would honor you and glorify you more with our lives. And as a church, Lord, we confess our sins to you, our pride, and the times where we know what your word says and we don't do it. We ask for forgiveness for our sins, Lord, and we know that through Jesus Christ, you are faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So pray today, Lord, that as your children, we would hear what you have to say and that we would respond favorably to it. We would honor our Savior, that we would return from sin, and that we would glorify our Father in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope from last week you kept a bookmarker in your Bibles because we are at the very next passage. The word of the Lord comes to us today from Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be doing verses 10 through 13 this morning. Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 13. This is God's word for God's people. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. <clears throat> for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is the word of the Lord. In the message from the previous passage, which, is the, which was given last week, we were shown from Scripture that the ultimate fulfillment of mankind's calling and purpose of, of our existence, of ruling and governing the earth, is to be found in Jesus of Nazareth the eternal, glorious Son of God who took on human flesh and became our head, our deliverer, and our king. Last week we said there was these, these prophecies, these purposes which were given to man, which man failed, and yet in the Lord Jesus as our head, he has succeeded. It is through Jesus Messiah as our crown, as our glorified Lord, that we, the fallen and rebellious race of humanity, may find reconciliation with God and restoration to our original purpose for which we were created, namely to be stewards and lords of the earth and fervent worshipers of God. Now, the passage before us today is a continuation of the concept of Christ's humanity, of our union with him, and what that means as followers of Jesus. It's one thing to know interesting theological facts, but the big question is, and it's not irreverent to ask it, so what? What, is, what does this mean for us? What difference does this make? How should we respond to what we're reading? 
So what does it mean that uh, Christ is human? What does it mean that we have union with Christ? We really must understand, both understand and grasp the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ is truly and was truly an actual human man who was born and who ate and who slept, who wept and who died on this earth and then was raised from the dead in a physical body. Um, I don't remember much else of the film, but there's that, uh, that movie, Passion of the Christ, which came out a long time ago. There's this scene of young boy Jesus running down the street and he trips and he falls and he's crying because his, uh, his knee is hurt and we see his mother running up and giving him comfort. And that's just a, you know, an invention of the film producers' minds. But we remember, it's, it does recall for us and it reinforced for us that Jesus Christ was that boy at some point. He did have to learn how to walk. He did stumble and fall. He was one of those toddlers where they turn their head and they hit the ground because they just don't have the strength yet. He was a human being who lived this human life. And the role that Jesus Christ fills as our unique and only Savior can only be filled if he was indeed truly human and not just an apparition or a spirit in human form. And this is essential doctrine. There's lots of things that we can disagree on and still be united as Christians, but not the person of Jesus Christ. This is absolutely central. This is something that Christians must be prepared to die for and which Christians have died for. That's, it's not theoretical that you might have to, or that Christians would die for this doctrine. In his first epistle, the Apostle John makes this clear statement about the necessity of professing the humanity of Jesus Christ. Um, if you can remember from 2017 when I went through 1 John, and I'm sure you all do, uh, John was writing to this church and one of the heresies which had snuck into the church was that Jesus wasn't physically on earth, but he was just a spirit who appeared to be human. And so John is saying just how important it is to dispel that notion and to reinforce that Jesus was truly human, that he came in the flesh. So 1 John 4, 1 through 3 reads, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And again, if you remember from 2017, um, the word Antichrist is pretty well known in our common Christian parlance, but the word only appears in John's epistles. There's only a couple of times in the whole Bible where it appears, and it's always in reference to somebody who doesn't confess who Jesus truly is. It says, this is the spirit of Antichrist. So what does this passage say? Well, it says you can tell false prophets from true professors by their Christology, their, their theology of Christ. You can tell true Christians from false Christians by who they confess Jesus to be. You, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come as a human being with human flesh is from God. Every spirit that denies that Jesus was, Christ was truly human is not from God. And the Apostle John says, this is the spirit of Antichrist. Again, denying the full humanity of Jesus is the spirit of Antichrist. True believers profess that Jesus Christ has come in human flesh and this is a dividing line between Christians and non-Christians. This is 
essential doctrine that we cannot waver on. And it's, it's not just one of these other theological options that we can argue over and remain brothers in Christ, like term limits for elders or the minimum age for baptism or something like that. The Lord Jesus Christ is truly human and truly God, and denying this doesn't separate good Christians from not so good Christians. It separates those who are children of God from those who are the spirit of Antichrist. And that's not my opinion, that's what the word says. If it was my opinion, I'd probably keep it to myself because it's an offensive thing to say for many of us. Say, you must believe this or you're not saved. And yet the Bible has not only, says that not only about this, but other doctrines as well. What we believe matters for eternity. But the question is, why is this essential doctrine? Why is this such a fundamental issue for Christianity? It's not some arbitrary decision that God made. He wasn't just sitting in the celestial throne in time past and thinking, I'm going to make this the dividing line. You must choose this arbitrary thing or you're not saved. The Lord Jesus Christ must be confessed as truly human and truly God because this is who he is. This is, and anything that isn't him is something else. That's just basic math, isn't it? Christ must be confessed as truly human because only the God-man, what the theologians call the Theoanthropos, can save us and can deliver us from the wrath that is to come. It is only Jesus who is qualified to be our Savior. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no prophet, there's no guru, there's no religious leader who can save us because we had to have a Savior who was both God and man, and only the Lord Jesus Christ is this God-man. He had to be God. He had to be human. In the next passage on Hebrews, um, which we're going to look at next week, verse 17 says that the Lord Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Earlier on in church history, these, uh, these false Christologies started seeping into the church, and they were becoming so prevalent that people had to get together and they had to define, this is what we're going to believe, this is what the church confesses about Christ. Because there were all these different heresies saying that Jesus wasn't all the way human. Maybe he was human, but he had divine spirit. Or maybe he was some, uh, you, you put God and human in a blender and you hit go, and you have some mixture of these, of these natures. But the Bible says, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus Christ was fully human. And one reason why he had to become truly human is so that he could suffer and die as a human in order to bring many sons to glory. In order for Jesus Christ to bring many sons to glory, that is, in order for many people to be saved, he had to suffer in their place as their true representative, as the second Adam who would lead the human race to redemption and not to a fall. And in order to suffer in the place of fallen humanity, he had to enter into fallen humanity as a mortal human being, as a true human being. The Lord Jesus Christ can save a people, he can lead a people, he can redeem a people because he is united with people in their common humanity. In our message uh, last week, it was emphasized that God created humanity good and placed them in a garden with no sin. Adam and Eve gave into temptation, sinning and, they, and rebelling against God, and thus ushering into the world all sin, death, and God's curse as well. 
This was man's fall because man sinned and man rebelled and man, therefore, is guilty before his creator. The debt is owed by man and it is man who must pay it. Is that your heresy meter, Dave? <laughs> Every Sunday he tells me he has a heresy meter. I think it's firing off right now. Let me get my plan B notes. And I just downloaded this last night. I didn't read it yet. Okay. okay. You're going to edit that out in post, aren't you, Calvin? The sins that brought God's judgment were committed by human beings. Human beings owe the debt and must pay the penalty for sin. They must pay that debt. God's word in Romans 6.23 tells us that the penalty for sin is death. The debt you owe for your sin is your life. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What then can be done to free us from this debt? If death's the penalty, if death's the paycheck for your sin, what could we possibly pay or do in exchange for our lives? Nothing. The penalty is death. And humanity is always and endlessly seeking ways to redeem themselves. And we invent new religions and new philosophies that we think will free us from the curse, even if we don't actually call it a curse. We're always trying to find some way out from under the guilt that we know we have and which we can't get rid of no matter how hard we try. I think I'm accurate in saying that apart from biblical Christianity, every other religion practiced by man and even false distortions of Christianity involve a works righteousness effort whereby we try to earn our salvation and have our good, work, good deeds outbalance our bad deeds and hope that the scales will tip in our favor at the end. But it's not going to work because the wages of sin is death. Sin equals death. There's, there's no plea bargain. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. We can do all the good works in the world and we still won't have the debt paid because the debt is death, not, go, not good works. It's like trying to pay off your mortgage with candy or if you were convicted of treason and you try to tell the judge you'll give him all the change in your pocket to let you go. That's not what the penalty is. The penalty isn't, doesn't require your good works and payment. The penalty is death. Death is the, only, uh, is the only payment that is an answer to the sin. And Romans 5 tells us that death spread to all men because all sin. Every human being has the death penalty because every human being has a sin's guilt and the price must be paid. And yet this is the good news of the gospel. The death debt we owe to a holy, just God who is angry with sin has been paid for all who would repent and believe savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what the cross means. It's not just a good luck symbol we wear around our necks. This is God's justice and God's love being demonstrated on a bloody instrument of Roman torture where man's death debt is paid by the loving God and to the loving God for a fallen and broken humanity in order to bring many sons to glory. The only way for the human debt to be paid is for a human being to die. And the Son of God took on human flesh so that a human being could pay the debt. In Colossians 2, I think it's 13 through 14, he says that God made us alive together with Christ, having canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He says, this he set aside nailing it to a cross. 
But think of that imagery. You know, we've got this wooden cross out in the parking lot. Imagine, we did this at my last church, actually, for Ash, uh, Ash Wednesday. We had a, that cross very similar laid down on the, on the stage, and there was a bucket of nails, hammers, and paper and pencil. And during the uh, songs, our pastor said, come up, write down the guilt that you have. Write down the things that you're feeling convicted of. Your lying, your idolatry, your pride, your adulterous thoughts, whatever it is, write it down, nail it to the cross. Nail it there. This is the imagery that Paul is using. We have a record of debt. It stood against us. There were legal demands. This is the language the scripture is using. God set it aside, nailing it to the cross. If we don't pay the debt that we owe to God, then someone else must pay it for us because the debt must be paid. Someone else must pay the death debt. Someone else must really and actually die in our place. Hebrews 9.22, which we'll get to eventually, says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Blood must be shed in order for sins to be forgiven. But this human, this human being, this substitute, must be sinless himself, or he too would owe the death debt to God. He must be truly human, truly sinless, and this human being's substitutionary self-sacrifice must be accepted by God. He must be human, but he also must be greater than merely human. Truly human, yet not merely human. Not less than human, not, not a mixture of humanity and divinity, but also something more than merely human. And, and why is that? Because one merely human, sinless individual could take the place of another if God accepted it. But God's plan wasn't just for one person to be saved. God's plan was for the salvation of many. It was to bring many sons to glory, not just one. It was to bear the punishment of sin for many and not just the individual. God's wrath against sin is so much greater than we understand. And the sacrifice, the propitiation, must be greater than one individual human. You know, so often, people, when they start to stray theologically, they, they immediately they get rid of hell. And they say, you know, how could God have a hell for our sins, and our sins aren't such a big deal. The mistake is that they're judging God's, how God deals with sin by their own opinion of sin instead of the other way around. We should recognize how serious sin is by how seriously God's going to deal with it, how seriously he has dealt with it on the cross. God's wrath against sin is greater than we understand, and the sacrifice, the propitiation, had to be huge. It had to be more than one individual, me or human. Jesus Christ is truly human, but he is also truly God. He must be truly human in order to be our representative, to take our place and pay our death debt. Yet he must also be truly God in order to be an acceptable propitiation and an acceptable sacrifice to die for the sins of his church. And this is why the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. This is why we, we still hold true uh, still hold to the truth of the reformers, sola Christos, solus Christos, Christ alone. Christ alone is our Savior because Christ alone is the only one qualified to be our Savior. It's not just a random choice. Nobody else fulfills what we need to be a Savior. It wasn't an arbitrary decision by God to make Jesus Christ the way, the truth, and the life. It's on the basis of what our great problem is, is fallen sinners who owe a debt that can never be repaid, and the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who is truly man and truly God. 
There, there is not and there has never been any other being in existence who could be humanity's representative and the sin bearer who bore the wrath of God for our sins. And God showed that the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus was accepted by raising Christ Jesus from the dead and crowning him with glory and honor. Jesus came, he said, I'm the son of man. He said, I'm gonna go to a cross, I'm gonna suffer many things. He said, believe in me and you will have eternal life. And a friend of mine who, who died said, a lot of people have claimed to be God. That's true, but only one of them came back from the dead. And Jesus Christ came back from the dead and this shows that God accepted the sacrifice, that God accepted the payment for the death debt that we owe. Now Jesus Christ, he has been raised and he's been crowned with glory and with honor. You know, I call, I refer, you might have noticed I refer to the Lord Jesus as King Jesus quite a bit because he's an actual king. He's actually ruling. He actually has been crowned with glory and honor for the things that he has done. It is only through Jesus Christ that we may have reconciliation with God. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven for our sins and have our guilt removed. That guilt that you have, the guilt that you feel, Christ paid for if you repent and believe savingly in him. And that guilt will be removed through what he did on the cross. It's such a, it's such a strange thing to think about. You have such a weight that you can never work off. You can't get rid of it. And you never will because the payment is, debt, is, is death. And yet, it can be taken from you freely. You don't have to work to have it removed because Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. Then all through Christ we owe. It is only through Jesus that we can be called children of God. God's eternal plan, since before he even created the earth, was to elect us for adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. Before God ever created the world, he had chosen us in him to be adopted as sons. Those who were fallen, who were broken, who were sinful and rebellious were elected by God to be saved. It wasn't the good people who got their acts together that were saved. It's us. It's the person you look at in the mirror. To become sons, this is why God saved us. And to affect this salvation, to make this salvation happen, to make it possible, God himself, the Son of God, the eternal and glorious second member of the Trinity, had to be born of a woman. He had to die in our place for our sins on a cross. Therefore, verse 10 of our passage says, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For, because, therefore, since King Jesus came to die for us, and since God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, through Christ's death and resurrection brought many sons to glory, it was fitting that the uh, Father made Christ perfect through suffering. Because of everything that we've just heard about man's guilt, and death debt and Jesus Christ taking on human flesh to come and die in our place and for our sins, 
to bring many sons to glory and to eternal life instead of eternal death, the author of Hebrews writes this passage. Now, this opening verse of our passage has some important truths for us that are significant for us to understand and take note of. Um, Pastor Jim, um, he's not getting a commission, but he's trying to get you guys to buy those little journaling Bibles that you can scribble in. And uh, I use one for Hebrews and for Ecclesiastes and for Daniel. And the Daniel one is just, just written all over. It's full of highlighters and pens and things. Because when you are interpreting scripture, when you're reading scripture, the first stage of interpretation is observation. You want to see what is there, what are the repeated phrases, are there significant action verbs, are there who's, who's talking, who's receiving the, the action, and start circling, start highlighting, start making notes. And so as we come to verse 10, there are things which jump out at us immediately just through observation, and we have to say, what do these things mean? And the first thing we might get hung up on a bit is when it talks about making Jesus perfect. And we shouldn't misunderstand that to mean that Jesus Christ was ever imperfect to us in any sinful way. And what it means in this context is that Jesus was made qualified or made completely adequate through suffering. In other words, he was made qualified to be our savior through suffering. Um, we, we, we see in other places in scripture where Jesus learned. He learned obedience, he grew. He was made qualified through suffering. An essential part of the Son of God becoming human was that he endures suffering as a human. We, we, I could maybe even often wonder, why didn't Jesus just parachute down from heaven as a fully grown man and go straight to the cross? Why was he born and have to live his entire life? There's a lot of answers to that, but one of them is he has to suffer as a human being. He told his disciples in uh, Luke 24, 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And he was telling his disciples, like, do you guys not get it yet? It was necessary that the Christ should suffer and rise from the dead. This is teaching from the resurrected Lord of glory himself. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to die and to rise from the dead on the third day. Suffering and, and bearing the reproaches of men were part of the role of the suffering servant was required to go through in order to be our savior of his people. Jesus Christ had to endure these things. He had to go through them, and he knew it. Isaiah 53, we read that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Suffering was the road Jesus Christ had to take in order to redeem us. And our text says that it was fitting for him to suffer. And fitting means that it was necessary, that it was appropriate or proper. He had to be human, and he had to suffer in our place. And our second truth to consider from verse 10 is that in the first chapter of Hebrews, as well as in John chapter 1 and Colossians 1, it's unmistakably taught that the Lord Jesus is for whom and by whom all things exist. And yet here in verse 10, it's the, the one who, for whom and by whom all things exist is the Father. This isn't a contradiction or confusion on behalf of our author. He's actually maybe a lot better at theology than that, and even just basic writing skills. 
the author in these series of passages that we're in um, during this little uh, mini section that we're in he is emphasizing the humanity of Christ. And he wants, us to remind, he wants to remind us and to reinforce for us with this verse, as he did in chapter 1, that Christ is one with the Father. He is God. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. We, we have to remember and emphasize we are not worshiping three different gods. We're not worshiping one big G God We're not, and a little G God and then some vague spiritual force called the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Trinity is fully God and a distinct person. God is one in three persons, the blessed Trinity. And the author of Hebrews is making a statement of Trinitarian fact here. The Son of God is the one for whom and by whom all things exist. And the Father is the one for whom and by whom all things exist. And if you're confused, you're in good company. Um, people, they frequently want to use analogies to describe the Trinity They'll say the Trinity is like fill in the blank. Well, as soon as you tell me what blank you're filling it in with, I can tell you what heresy you've fallen under. Because Christ, God did not create anything in the world like the Trinity. You can't say it's like the fire analogy because that's three different parts of one thing. Each member of the Trinity is fully God. It's Father's Day. You know, I could say I'm son, I'm, I'm brother, I'm father. Those are different aspects of my character, but those aren't three distinct persons. There's nothing in creation like the Trinity. So when we talk about the Trinity, you're going to go cross-eyed a little bit because you can't compare it to anything. These are things which we can apprehend, but we cannot comprehend fully. Maybe we will in the new creation. I don't know. But Jesus was explaining this very fact of his oneness with the Father to his apostles. And they also were beginning to drool and go cross-eyed a little bit. Um, John 14 is one example. He's teaching his disciples this Trinitarian truth, and they aren't picking it up very well. John 14, 5 through 11, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, maybe Philip should have been quiet, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, If I have been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus elsewhere says, I and the Father are one. The Pharisees are giving him a hard time, and they say, you're not even 50 years old, and you're saying that you got to see Abraham? And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He was, make, he was making a reference to I am from the Old Testament. And then a lot of liberal theologians will say, no, he wasn't. But the Pharisees understood exactly what he was doing because they tried to kill him for blasphemy. They knew what he was doing. Jesus was saying, I am that God from the Old Testament. Jesus is emphasizing here and elsewhere the unity that he has with the Father. And the author of our text in Hebrews wishes for us to see this unity as well, and he spent so much time in chapter 1 doing so, which we've covered in previous message. So why is this significant for us? Again, this is great. This is really interesting, but what difference does it make? Well, think about the be what we were talking about in the beginning of the message. In order for Christ to be our Redeemer, he had to be truly human and truly God. And the author of Hebrews has, until the last few verses, emphasized the unity of Jesus Christ with God the Father, 
There were some incredible statements in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 6 says, let all God's angels worship him. And that's an Old Testament quote, which is referring to Yahweh originally. The hymn is Yahweh. But in chapter 1, God is saying that about Jesus Christ. So in other words, God is calling Jesus Christ God in chapter 1. So we see then, not just that Jesus is God, but that there's a quintessential unity in the Godhead. Jesus isn't just God, but he is one with God. And whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. God is united to himself. This truth of the unity of the Godhead makes this passage in Hebrews all the more astounding to us because of what it says in verse 11. So if we were starting in verse 1, chapter 1 of Hebrews, we see the author build his case, Jesus is God. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He gets into our section, Jesus is also human. And then he gets to this verse, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And this is the bombshell verse for us this morning. There are so many verses in Scripture where you just, you're just reading through the passage. Maybe you're doing your read through the Bible in a year, and you've got like 10 minutes left before you have to go to work, so you just blast past some of these things. But this is a verse that has some enormity to it. And for how long and for how hard has the author of Hebrews been laboring to show his readers, and by extension us, that the man, Jesus Christ, is also the creator God from Genesis 1. That Jesus Christ is the God who led Israel out of Egypt, as it says in Jude 5. That Jesus Christ receives the worship of angels. And now, after all that we've heard about who Jesus Christ is, and how supreme and how glorious he is, the author then says, he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. That is, the one who sanctifies being Jesus Christ, and those who are sanctified, which is all those who are truly born again, all have one source. And therefore, Jesus Christ isn't ashamed to call us his brothers. If you are truly a son of God, as in you've repented of your sins and your self-reliance and your pride and your idolatry, and you've placed your trust and your hope in the Lord Jesus that I've been speaking about, then he's not ashamed to call you brother or sister. You, the sinner who's never gotten it right, and thumbs pointing at me when I do that. You, the rebel who has spent so much of your life trying to live apart from God. You, the one filled with guilt and regret over the wickedness you've done. I met a man a couple years ago, he was visiting our church, and he, right afterwards he was about ready to leave, and he said, well, I liked your church, I like to come back, but I gotta get myself cleaned up a bit before I come back to church. Like he's gotta get his life straightened out. He's not knowing this truth. The person that he looks at in the mirror who's messed everything up, God's not ashamed to call you brother or sister. In Christ, because of Christ, you are forgiven. Do you know what that means? Those things that you have guilt for, which you are guilty for, which you have sin's death debt for, you're forgiven because of what Jesus has done. You're forgiven of these sins. Your guilt is removed. Your debt has been paid for. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are made alive together with Christ. And Jesus Christ, King Jesus, is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister. Now, some of us have real siblings who are ashamed to call us brother or sister. 
but the eternal Lord of glory is not ashamed to call us brother. Jesus Christ and the true child of God have one source. We share our humanity. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh, our flesh. God raised Jesus from the dead, and in his mercy, he raised us from our spiritual death as well and adopted us as sons. The one who Jesus calls Father, we may now call Father. The passage continues from verse 12. It says, That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. These are three quotes from the Old Testament. The author from the Hebrews goes back quite a bit. Um, they are from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8:17 and Isaiah 8:18. Um, at the bottom of your Bibles, it should have those references. Psalm 22 is especially interesting because it, uh, it predicts so much of what actually happened with the crucifixion. I encourage you to read it this week. But these passages are, are showing us, among many other things, that the Son of God taking on human flesh, dying on a cross, rising from the dead, and bringing many sons to glory has always been the plan of God. This is always what God intended to do. He wrote about it through the Old Testament. And this is why Jesus said in Luke 24, which I quoted earlier, that it is written. The Bible in the Old Testament presaged the coming of the God-man who would take away the sin and the pay the death debt of his people. Bless you. <laughs> can you see the, the, the beauty of this? And can we see why Paul, when he writes about election and predestination in Ephesians 1, he does so in a spirit of praise and wonder. It, it, it's kind of just, I, I can't understand it, but it's also once you re read your Bibles more, I get kind of surprised how angry people get over what the Bible teaches about election and predestination. Because when Paul writes about it here, he does it in praise and wonder. He, he, he glorifies God for this. And I'm not trying to fill in space, because you probably think it's time to go already. But we need to see this passage I read earlier again, now that we have a better perspective. Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You think God's withholding any spiritual blessing? It says, every spiritual blessing God has blessed you with, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul says, blessed be God the Father. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption as what? As sons, not as subjects that are just debased before him and, and uh, have no worth in his eyes. We are sons. And this, through Christ, according to the purpose of God's will, to the praise of God's glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the eternal Lord of glory, who's not afraid, who's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ, who looks at us, who looks at that weak person that you see in the mirror every day and says, you are my brother. You are my sister. We have the same father. Romans 8.29 says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Why? 
in order that he, that is Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Why did he predestine? So that we would be conformed to the image of his son. Well, who's his son? Jesus Christ, the firstborn among many brothers. Our election is inextricably tied to our brotherhood with Christ and our sonship of God. Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. And the term brothers is Adelphoi. It's kind of a, it can be used specifically to refer to a group of men, but also kind of like in the Romance languages where it refers to men and women. So a lot of modern translations will say brothers and sisters, which I've been saying as well. Matthew 12, 46 to 50, scripture says, while he, that is Jesus, was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who's my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand to his disciples, he said, here are my mother, mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Lord Jesus Christ calls his disciples, those who follow him, who love him, who obey him, his brothers. And he's not ashamed to do so. He's not ashamed of you. And he's not ashamed to call you brother or sister. And this truth leads us to another truth, which is important. By implication, we must remember, as exiles and sojourners in this world, before God remakes it, what this means for us. If you look around this room, you'll see it mostly filled with people. It's still some empty seats. But among these people are those who Christ is not ashamed to call brothers and sisters. I don't, I don't know you all personally. Maybe you haven't accepted Christ's forgiveness yet. But in this room, there are those Christ isn't ashamed to call brothers and sisters. And if you are someone who, calls Christ, who Christ calls brother, and the person next to you is somebody who Christ calls brother, then the two of you are brothers in Christ. This made me think of... Um, if, you're math, if you remember ge your geometry lesson, you think of Euclid's transitive property of equality, or if you saw the movie Lincoln with Daniel Day-Lewis, two things which are equal to a third thing are equal to each other. If God, Christ is my brother and Christ is your brother, then we too are brothers as well. In Christ, we are spiritual siblings. And if you spend a lot of time in the church, you know that some of these folks in the church are closer to you than your actual family. Maybe because you see them more, or maybe because you don't want to have anything to do with your actual family. And many of you have had or now have terrible relationships with siblings or no siblings at all so that you don't like the idea of these people being your spiritual brothers and sisters, but it's true. All who are truly followers of Jesus Christ are brothers and sisters in Christ and will remain so forever. This isn't just a term that Christians like to use to sound more warm and fuzzy to each other. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we will remain so forever. Our church, which is the people, not the building, should be so important to us and so loved by us and treated so well by us because they are brothers and sisters. They are brothers and sisters of you, and they are brothers and sisters of the Lord who you profess to serve. And King Jesus told us that the unbelieving world, that's Port Townsend, will know whether our profession is genuine by how we love each other and strive for unity as a church. We are Christ's servants. We are Christ's bride. We are Christ's body. We are Christ's family, which also makes us Christ's ambassadors. The unbelieving world is watching this church to see whether our profession is genuine by how we love each other, by how we strive for unity, by how we live out the spiritual reality that we are brothers in Christ. 
our union with Christ and our brotherhood with him means we no longer live for ourselves, but we now live for Christ and we follow in his footsteps. We love each other. We praise God the Father together. And the world, to the world, we witness in our words and in our deeds, all of whom, all of this unbelieving world need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We were waiting for it. Here's the end. With Apostle Peter has these words to say, and I close with this. Know that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, I hope that as we pray, and as our prayers begin with, Father, we keep these truths in mind. That you aren't a distant and removed God who doesn't care about us. That you are our Abba Father. That you sent your own Son to take our place to pay our debt. That through Christ we are made alive together. You've canceled the record of our debts by nailing it to the cross. And Jesus Christ gladly went to that cross to redeem us. And I pray for all of us today that this would change how we live, how we treat sin, how we treat our favorite sins we keep going back to, how we treat our neighbor who needs to hear this good news as well, how this impacts our life. These are truths, Lord, not to hear, but to respond to, to listen to, to live by. How, Lord, should we live if what these things say are true? Make us alive, Lord. Let us shine as a city on a hill, as a church on the hill called Calvary. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. I do have one note. I